is Chichester Cinephile, the podcast for Chichester Cinema at New Park in Chichester, West Sussex. Find us at chichestercinema.org. It's showtime, folks. Hello, welcome to the podcast. I'm happy to say that we're able to do what we set out to do when we decided to produce a podcast and preview films that are about to be shown at Chichester Cinema at New Park. Yes, the cinema is due to reopen on Friday the 21st of May. We'll be starting with the previews in a moment or two. We also have two features, one marking the centenary of the birth of great Indian filmmaker Shachajit Ray and one looking at locations in film. And another of our listeners will be telling us about their unforgettable film, the one that means the most to them. And it's a really interesting film this time. There's no mini Cine Circle discussion on this occasion, as the Cine Circle proper is planned for the Hornet Ale House on June the 21st, all being well. Watch the Chichester Cinema at New Park newsletter for details of that. For now, though, we have our regular team here, Carol. Hello, I'm Carol Godsmark. Patrick. Hi, this is Patrick, Deputy Education Officer at the cinema. And I'm Sandy, just a regular at the cinema. After this, we'll be previewing some of the films planned for the cinema in May. I'm in the business of putting old heads on young shoulders, and all my pupils are the creme de la creme. Patrick is first up. So Nomadland is the third feature by Chinese director Chloe Zhao. All three of them made in the USA. The first two both about the Lakota Sioux people, each with a cast drawn primarily from that tribe. However, this film's about a rather different kind of tribe, the largely white, van-dwelling nomads who, either from necessity or choice, travel around the USA, picking up work when they can. It stars Frances McDormand as Fern, here explaining to two uncomprehending mechanics that her van is more than just a set of wheels to her. Okay, uh, what we've got is parts and labor, $2,300 okay. and tax. I just looked up the value on your van. With that high a mileage, you're looking about $5,000 at the most. I'd probably recommend... Um, taking that money and putting it towards a different vehicle. Yeah, no, well, I can't do that. I can't do that, see, because, all right. um, I uh, uh, spent a lot of time and money building the inside out, and um, a lot of people don't understand the value of that, but um, it's not something like you can... I live in there. It's my home. This film has taken all the major awards this year, including Best Film and Best Director at the Oscars, BAFTAs and Golden Globes. So you probably need no urging from me to see it, but I would also recommend the source non-fiction book of the same title by Jessica Bruder. Nomadland is an award winner, but not all the winners are going to be in the cinemas. No, that's true. Um, Promising Young Woman, which was nominated for several awards and actually won, I think, for Best Original Screenplay at the Oscars and at the BAFTAs for Emerald Fennell, the British writer and director, 
We won't be able to see that at the cinema because apparently Focus Features, who made the film, have done a deal with Sky and it will only be shown on Sky. They are not allowing it to be shown at the cinema. Uh, I presume there'll be a DVD in due course, but I think that is an extremely disappointing decision to deny us the opportunity to see this important film at our local cinema. I'm looking forward to Nomadland. It's a subject I knew nothing about until I read a book about these nomads, probably about uh, 15 years ago. A different book to the one the film's based on, but it's an interesting subject. Yeah, it's certainly a gripping story, and I'm really looking forward to seeing this. And Chloe Zhao, in her previous films that I've also seen, her use of the American landscape is just amazing, so I'm sure it's going to be a stunning-looking film. Yes, I can imagine. Chloe Zhao is also an ex-student of Brighton College, I understand. She was there in her teens. Oh, how interesting, Patrick. I didn't know that. It's so good to see a new breed of directors like uh, Chloe Zhao. She's very self-effacing, and she's only the second woman to win. There's Catherine Bigelow, of course, in 2010 for The Hurt Locker, terrific film. But she won Best Picture and Best Director, Chloe and it'd be so interesting to see what she does next. Chloe Zhao's next film is the Marvel superhero film, Eternals. Oh well, I hope they paid her the same rate as the male directors of that <laughs> franchise. <laughs> Another Oscar and BAFTA-nominated film, Mank, will be in the cinema this month. It won the Oscar for Best Cinematography for Eric Messerschmidt, and the BAFTA for Production Design went to Donald Graham Burton, Jan Pascal. It's been out on Netflix for some time and now comes to the big screen. It's the story, partly imagined or supposed, of the writing of Citizen Kane, Orson Welles' groundbreaking 1941 film, for which he shared screenwriting credits with Herman J. Mankiewicz. Well, this follows the theory that Welles did not deserve that credit. Gary Oldman is Mank, and Amanda Seyfried is Marion Davis, the girlfriend of William Randolph Hearst, Charles Dance, on whom the character of Kane is based. In this clip, Mank, laid up with a broken leg, is dictating the script. Once a castle on a hill, now in memory of what once was, alone in his unfinished, already decaying pleasure palace, aloof, seldom visited, never photographed, we see an old man a robe, smoking a pipe, sitting alone by his pool of uh, uh, discarded pages scattered at his feet. Narrator, an emperor of newsprint continued to direct his failing empire, vainly attempting to sway as he once did the destinies of a nation which had long since ceased to listen to him. No, uh, had ceased to trust him. Shot in black and white, much in the style of Citizen Kane, is directed by David Fincher from a screenplay by his late father, Jack. Interesting fact. This film was originally planned to be made in the 1990s with Kevin Spacey and Jodie Foster. For more about Herman J. Mankiewicz, can I refer you to the February podcast and Patrick's look at his work. What's next? Carol, have you ever used Minari in cooking? I've never cooked with it, but I'm now aware. Minari is the Oscar and multi-award and nominated film. 
and is called after an East Asian herb grown in the wild and treasured by this area's cooks. Its appearance in this film is a sign of something mysterious and providential, an indication of good things coming from the soil. This tender and sweeping story is about a Korean-American family who moved to a tiny Arkansas farm in search of their own American dream. Their family home changes completely with the arrival of their sly, foul-mouthed, but incredibly loving grandmother, played by a much-loved Korean actress who won the Best Supporting Role Oscar in formidable funny form. Amidst the instability and challenges of this new life in the rugged Ozarks, Minari shows the undeniable resilience of family and what really makes a home. This wonderfully absorbing and moving family drama is by writer-director Lee Isaac Chung, who based it on his childhood growing up on a farm in Arkansas in the 1980s. Here's a clip from Minari featuring the young boy and his grandmother, played by Ya Jung Hoon. pretty boy. Pretty boy. Pretty boy. I'm not pretty. I'm good looking. Patrick. Well, although largely unsuccessful in this year's awards, I did thoroughly enjoy Aaron Sorkin's The Trial of the Chicago 7, which featured Kelvin Harrison Jr. in a supporting role as senior Black Panther Fred Hampton. In Judas and the Black Messiah, the second feature by American director Shaka King, Hampton takes centre stage, although weirdly, British actor Daniel Kaluuya won the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor. Here he is addressing a rally of fellow activists. It's not a, it's not a question of violence or non-violence. It's a question of resistance to fascism or non-existence within fascism. You can murder a liberator, but you can't murder liberation. You can murder a revolutionary, but you can't murder revolution. And you can murder a freedom fighter, but you can't murder freedom. This was a fascinating period of American politics, and with a cast to relish, including Lakeith Stanfield, who was also Oscar-nominated, and Martin Sheen as J. Edgar Hoover, I'm very excited about seeing this one. Yes, and a fascinating period of history. Maybe it was because it was in our lifetimes. I watched the previous film you mentioned, The Trial of the Chicago 7, on Netflix while the cinema was closed. Our next preview, The Dig, is another one that has been out on Netflix for a while, but the big Suffolk skies should benefit from being seen on a big screen. It's another story based on fact, with the story of the important archaeological excavations at Sutton Hoo in 1938. Rafe Fiennes is Basil Brown, a self-taught archaeologist who's patronised by the more establishment archaeologists who try to muscle in, but the landowner, played by Kerry Mulligan, has faith in the local man. Lily James, Ben Chaplin and Ken Stott also star. The Dig is directed by Simon Stone from the 2007 novel of the same name by John Preston. Here's a clip from when Basil first comes to meet Kerry Mulligan's Edith. Should we take a look at them then? Right. Things like this are usually done through museums. Yes. But when I approached Ipswich, Mr. Reed Moore said that with the war coming, they couldn't embark upon any new ventures. Well, they have their hands full. 
with a Raymond Villa. Yes, you said you were working on it. I am. You told me you were a difficult man. <laughs> Did he know? <laughs> Unorthodox. And untrained. So that's his reference, is it? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm not untrained. I've been on digs since I was old enough to hold a trowel. My father taught me. Perhaps Reed Moore just wants to keep you for himself. <laughs> I don't know about that. Now it's Carol with a film I most certainly want to see. The Mauritanian, directed by Kevin MacDonald, the last King of Scotland's director, and based on the New York Times best-selling memoir, Guantanamo Diary, this is the inspiring true story of the writer's fight for freedom after being detained and imprisoned without charge by the US government for over 14 years. Alone and afraid, Slahi Tahar Ramin, a prophet and the past star, finds allies in defense attorney Nancy Hollander, Jodie Foster, who battles the US government in a fight for justice that tests their commitment to the law and their client at every turn. Also starring Benedict Cumberbatch with an American accent and a crew cock to match. In this clip, Foster's Nancy Hollander talks to Tahar Rahim's Mohamedou. Outside my family, my brother, th th their lives go on. Tara's life goes on. But me here, I'm, I'm, I'm like a statue. Now you will leave too and your life will go on. How do you know about my life? This is it, this is my life. I spend my time in places like this helping people like you, that's what I do. I don't question my commitment to your case. The case, the case, the case. You're not committed to me. A person! No. You think I'm guilty, say it. Tahar Radim was very good as serial killer Charles Sobraj in the BBC series The Serpent recently too. Interesting, isn't it, that all six films that we're previewing are based in somewhere or another on real life, either on real people, real events, or in the case of Minari, as a semi-autobiographical film. Oh, that's a good point. This shows perhaps that fictional films are sometimes the best form to use for looking again at past events. Could be. Now, there's an education event we should mention. Yes, on the 12th of June at 10.30 in the Cinema Auditorium, Rosemary Coxon will be presenting her long postponed session on the films of Sam Mendes, including a range of clips from films such as American Beauty, Road to Perdition, Revolutionary Road and Skyfall. Tickets are on sale right now. And there is a short film you can watch as a teaser for the event. Just to remind you, in conjunction with the education department at the cinema, we've produced some short films as we couldn't hold any education events for a while. Apart from the Mendes one, there's a look at the Dirk Bogard film Darling, and two others are features that previously appeared on the podcast, on staircases and the use of harmonica in films. You can find a link to them on the cinema's newsletter, or they're on the cinema's education page at YouTube. Back at the cinema, the box office is open, and for dates and times for the films we have mentioned, go to www.chichitacinema.org for details. Still to come, Shatterjit Ray and an exploration of film locations. 
But next we'll be hearing from a listener about her unforgettable film. I'm Spartacus! I'm Spartacus! And now Peggy Easton is going to tell us about her unforgettable film, the one that means the most to her. Peggy, what's your unforgettable film? I think the one that haunts me the most, recently anyway, is Tangerines. It's an Estonian-Georgian film that came out, I think it was shown here first in 2015. And I saw it during the film festival at Newport Cinema's Film Festival, I think in 2015. Why does this film mean so much to you? For me, it is the most mature anti-war film I have ever seen. It captures the insanity of war and the impact on regular people without resorting to sensationalism or nationalism or glorification of war at all. And the main character who's the kind of the kingpin of everything, is such a a beautiful character that demonstrates both humility, humanity, and kind of a stoicism that's just really impressive. And it's his influence on others in the film and how he changes their relationship. That's so wonderful to me. Peggy Easton was discussing Tangerines from 2013, directed by Zaza Urushadze. Why are you crazy? The fall will probably kill you. Patrick is now going to look at the work of a great Indian director. It's his centenary, but also an apt time to discuss Indian films with the current crisis in India with the Covid situation. Yeah, I thought that really one can't celebrate the life of India's greatest filmmaker without acknowledging the terrible plight of his home country as this feature is recorded. I understand over 200,000 people are known to have died from COVID in India. Among them, Sumitra Chatterjee, the star of The World of Upu, and 13 other films directed by Shachijit Rai. So let's hope that India receives the help it needs from across the world to enable it to overcome this appalling situation. An appeal's been set up on GoFundMe by some Indian doctors based in the UK for oxygen cylinders. Walter's going to put a link to this on the cinema newsletter. So here's Patrick's feature. Exterior, day. A wide shot of a vast, uncultivated landscape in West Bengal, scattered with kush, a type of grass common there, similar to pampas grass. 
In the foreground left of frame is an electricity pylon. The girl stands regarding it quizzically then approaches it. It emits a hum and she puts her ear to the pylon and listens intently. Her younger brother approaches, also transfixed by the pylon. He too presses his ear to it and listens. The two children walk on and the camera follows them as they walk through the cache which towers above them. They stop to rest under a large clump and chew on the stems. Suddenly the girl hushes her brother and listens intently to a sound in the distance. A steam train approaches, hauling several carriages. The children sprint towards it and the shot cuts to a reverse angle so that we see them through the wheels of the passing train. train gone, a wide shot shows the smoke from it drifting across the sky. This dreamlike sequence, which I have inadequately attempted to render in words, comes just over halfway through the 1955 film Patha Panchali, which was the debut feature of the Indian director Shachajet Rai, the centenary of whose birth is marked this month. It was the first sequence to be filmed. Neither Rai nor his cinematographer Subrata Mitra had made any kind of film previously and it was completely improvised. In an interview from 1988 for an edition of the BBC series Omnibus dedicated to his work, Rye regretted what he called the amateurish quality of the early footage he shot. When we shot the beginning we were all amateurs learning our craft and some of it shows in the, in the, in the cutting and in, in the, in the in the timing, in the rhythm of the film, in, even in the photography to a certain extent. But from about halfway onwards till the end, by that time, with, what, with all the long gaps in between, we learnt a lot. We looked at the footage again and again and we learnt our, by our mistakes. And uh, in the end, of course, the second half is very fluent and uh, effective, I think. But Rye's self-deprecation fails to disguise the extraordinary visual quality, not only of this sequence, but of the entire film, which soon came to be regarded as a masterpiece of world cinema. And it's not only its visual qualities which are remarkable, the performances he drew from a largely non-professional cast, including the two children who are the central characters, Durga and Uppu, are on a comparable level to the Italian neo-realist films, such as De Sica's Bicycle Thieves, which had inspired Rai a few years earlier on a trip to London, where he had been sent by the Kolkata advertising agency for whom he worked as a graphic designer. The film, based on a classic Bengali novel by Bibutibus and Banerjee, which depicts the daily struggles of a poverty-stricken family in a village in West Bengal, became an international success 
and was awarded the Best Human Document Award at the Cannes Film Festival. Pathapanchali means in English, Song of the Little Road, and Banerjee wrote a sequel to it, Operagito, The Unvanquished, from which Rai created two further films, Operagito and The World of Opu. The three films became known as the Opu Trilogy after the central protagonist. Operagito, the second film, which like all three of the films in the trilogy features music composed by Ravi Shankar, follows the classic form of the narrative of personal growth, tracking Opu from childhood and adolescence to the cusp of manhood as he leaves his mother to go and study in Kolkata. As in Pathapanchali, the train recurs as a motif of escape, modernity and an irresistible driving force. But in the earlier film, it is only seen from a distance. In Operagito, it takes Apu away from his mother, away from a peaceful rural existence, into the hubbub of Kolkata. The sequence where he leaves his mother, takes the train and arrives in Kolkata is a masterly piece of narrative compression, typical of a film in which the pace is radically increased from the first one. It also illustrates Rai's technique of using key objects as metaphors for the underlying themes of his films. The opening shot of the sequence is a close-up of the sundial which Opu made as a child, inspired by science lessons at school. His mother fusses around him, helping him pack, itemising the delicacies which he has made to remind him of her. After a perfunctory farewell, Opu departs for the station along the path out of the village, and his stricken mother turns and passes through the doorway back into the home where she will now live alone in an eerie silence broken only by the barking of a dog. A dissolve takes us to the mayhem of the interior of a packed train bound for Kolkata, where a one-eyed hawker brandishes a small pot of balm which he claims has special healing properties, a signifier of traditional pre-scientific Bengal. <laughs> Opu, intent on a miniature globe, another key icon of science, dismisses him curtly. A majestic high-angle wide shot reveals the train entering Kolkata station, and successive dissolves reveal Opu descending from the train onto the packed platform and a Kolkata road name, Harrison Street, signifier of a colonial past, before cutting to Opu in a run-down Kolkata street, where he is nearly literally run down by a speeding car. The final shot of this sequence shows Opu disappearing through the door of the Royal Press, the small printing firm where he will work in the evenings to finance his studies. It is all very Dickensian, strongly reminiscent of works such as David Copperfield.
The final film in the trilogy, The World of Oppu, begins almost farcically as Oppu, now a young man, played by Sumitra Chatterjee, attends a wedding as a guest, only to end up marrying the bride, Aparna, played by the 14-year-old Sharmila Tagore, when her intended husband turns out to be insane. Both Chatterjee and Tagore would subsequently become part of Rai's repertory company, appearing in several more of his films. The scenes of their early married life in Oppu's small apartment are beautifully shot by Rai and played by the two leads, despite the constraints imposed by the censorship at the time. You should remember that uh, in an Indian film, in a Bengali film, at that time, we couldn't show any very close contact. No kisses, no embraces, nothing of the sort. And yet I had to make it intimate, make the scenes intimate. Aparna has come from a wealthy family and a spacious, well-appointed house. On arriving at the tatty apartment block, she follows her husband up the cramped stairwell to be confronted by an infant sitting on the first floor landing. Through an open door, we see a woman at a sewing machine. They climb a further flight of dingy stairs to the outside entrance of Oppu's apartment which directly overlooks the railway line. Opu leaves Aparna to take in the cramped rooms while he fetches the luggage. Aparna is sumptuously dressed, elaborately made up and adorned with jewellery. The camera follows her as she crosses the tiny room and sits at a window covered by a torn, flimsy curtain. She sobs and Rai cuts to a close-up of her tear-streaked face as she looks out of the window through a rent in the curtain. Outside in the courtyard, a toddler plays, a dog barks, and a pig feeds. The marriage looks like being a big mistake for both parties. But on Apu's return, Aparna composes herself, dries her tears, and smiles warmly at her husband. Seemingly, the entire population of the apartment block have gathered at the bottom of the stairwell to greet the bride. And the scene when Apu takes her to show the crowd who are awed by her beauty and style, is immensely moving. Shachajit Rai was a prolific director, making 37 films in all, never making a film in the West and never losing either his compassion or his genius for creating characters and telling human stories through the cinematic medium. As a young man, he met and was inspired by the French director Jean Renoir when he came to Bengal to make his 1951 film, The River. Rai's films are very much in the tradition of Renoir's humanism and fascinating in the way he synthesised Western cinema with the culture and traditions of his homeland. Later this year, we hope to commemorate his genius with an event at the cinema, where clips from many of his other masterpieces, including The Music Room, Charalata, and Days and Nights in the Forest will be shown.
Still to come, Carol will be going on location. And I still claim I'm as tight than I'd have proposed to you. If you'd have been a gentleman, you'd forgotten all about it, but not you. Oh, you're losing your eye. You used to Finding the right film location, with financing and casting process out of the way, the real hard work begins, making a film. The location is one of the many important aspects of filming, just as finding the right actors to portray a role, or just as important as the choice of music used in the film. Finding an easily accessible location is not enough. Securing permissions to shoot a film would prove disastrous if location permits had not been obtained. Phil and Kirsty's mantra, location, 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 is a well-known figure of speech, which mostly works for those home seekers, as film directors and crews do as well, always on the lookout for the same trope, prior to pointing a camera at the scenes to tell a story. But being able to film in many iconic locations, a New York street, one of London or Paris or Moscow, is not only expensive, but often not possible due to city bylaw constraints. How can you stop traffic on busy streets for a scene in most cities? Filmmakers often choose other locations as a double. Toronto and Vancouver often used for New York and other American cities due to lower production costs, close proximity to a range of available backdrops, and a mild climate conducive to year-round shooting. The Western Canadian city has had a long history of filming scenes passing as other cities, such as Gary Cooper hitching a ride to the Fairmont Hotel in Vancouver on a passing street cleaning machine, plus Fifty Shades of Grey, Juno, Mission Impossible with Tom Cruise, Vancouver, a fine clone of a city. The Revenant, the Oscar-winning grisly film starring Leonardo DiCaprio and Tom Hardy, may be set in 19th century South Dakota and Montana, but was mostly filmed near Calgary in Alberta. Parts of the Canadian Rockies, such as Bow Valley and Fortress Mountain, featured, while the notorious bear attack scene took place in Squamish Valley across the provincial border into British Columbia. But other countries can be up for grabs, such as Estonia for Christopher Nolan's sci-fi flick, Tenet, out last year to What the heck is this all about? reviews. The hell is that? One of the most confusing and puzzling scenes was an elaborate car chase along one of the most used highways in the Estonian capital of Tallinn. To film the challenging sequence, the film shut down five miles, that's eight kilometers up the highway, and filmed for three whole weeks, involving hundreds of extras and stuntmen driving cars both forward and in reverse. Incredibly, no CGI was used at all in this epic scene. The location scouts for this film would have been very experienced, their knowledge including knowing the script, scouting at the right time of day, looking at the light, checking for power supplies and mobile phone reception, making sure of the space to shoot, and getting that must-have permission, their first port of call. Tenant was filmed in seven countries, Estonia, Denmark, India, Italy, Norway, England, and the US, over a six-month period. All the location work hugely complex, those location scouts earning their money in no small measure. 
If you saw the film, you might not have known to what extent the plane crash sequence was crafted in California. A Boeing 747 was purchased only to be crashed into a hangar. This proved to be more cost-effective than using miniatures or CGI. In true Nolan form, it was not just the stunts that had to be performed backwards, but the main cast also had to learn to speak in reverse. Well, this is what Tenet is all about. Time change, climate change, or at least this was Nolan's aim and claim. Wales plays a major part in location filming, including Lara Croft, starring Angelina Jolie. The producers chose Snowdonia as a location after they were denied permission to shoot the $100 million movie in China, where the story is set. A mock Chinese village was created at Hlin Gwinant, and Chinese extras were hired to play farm labourers. Penbrin Beach is another stunning location in which Wales shows its natural beauty, and in the Bond film, Die Another Day. Penryn, doubling for North Korea. American Werewolf in London, the groundbreaking werewolf horror film, really showed off lots of the UK, though maybe not in the most tourist-enticing way. You're right, it is a pub. Okay, well, what do you say? We go in for a little food, huh? drink, rest? The Slaughtered Lamb. That's kind of strange. The famous pub, The Slaughtered Lamb, where characters meet a lot of unfriendly locals, is actually a Welsh pub in the village of Crickardan. In the film, it's meant to be in Yorkshire. Alexander Skarsgård swung into action in Snowdonia in 2016 as Tarzan in The Legend of Tarzan for a week's worth of filming on the big-budget movie, which also starred Margot Robbie, Christoph Waltz and Samuel L. Jackson. The production set up camp at the former Slate Quarry, the same quarry used for The Clash of the Titans and Tomb Raider. The third Indiana Jones film sees the archaeologist-turned-action hero, Harrison Ford, head off in search of the Holy Grail, which turns out to be, spoiler alert, in the canyon of the Crescent Moon. The real location is Al-Khazneh, part of the rock-carved pink city of Petra in Jordan. The culmination of fantastic beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald, is set in the famed Cimetière du Père Lachaise in Paris. However, these scenes were actually filmed in Highgate Cemetery in North London, one of the crypts at the Circle of Lebanon, an architectural highlight of the cemetery, was used to portray the entrance to the L'Estrange Mausoleum. Many old-school classics may be called spaghetti westerns, but very few were actually filmed in Italy. Fistful of Dollars Clint Eastwood hit was shot in the Tabernas Desert in Andalucía, Spain. Visitors able to see the old sets where the gunfights and chases took place. The southeast province of Almería, also in Spain, and known as Hollywood's go-to destination for Western films throughout the 1960s and early 70s, was thanks to cheap labor and barren landscapes that served as the ideal location for American studios looking to make films about the Wild West, North Africa, and the galaxy. Productions like Lawrence of Arabia, 100 Rifles, Cleopatra, How I Won the War, and the Clint Eastwood Dollars Trilogy found their homes here. 
One of my all-time favorite films, Grand Budapest Hotel, was set in the imaginary Republic of Zebrovka. West Anderson's 2014 outing filmed largely in Görlitz, the easternmost town in Germany. The Art Nouveau interiors of the abandoned Görlitzer Warenhaus department store doubled as the hotel's lobby. And Anderson also used other parts of the pretty town to set the scene, such as the old storefront, which was transformed into Mendel's Bakery. Spotting is one of those often mentioned favourites. Although Danny Boyle's adaptation of Irving Welsh's novel is set in Edinburgh, it was almost entirely filmed in Glasgow. Among the locations used are the Café Giacconelli, where Renton, Ewan McGregor and Spud, Ewan Bremner, share a milkshake and drugs. And Kelburn Saint Restaurant, formerly the Crosslands Pub, where Begbie, Robert Carlyle, ends up in a brawl, both in the North Kelvin area. 1949's Passport to Pimlico, a gem of a film starring Stanley Holloway, Margaret Rutherford and Michael Horden, is a comedy set just after World War II. The London district of Pimlico, slightly shabbier than its grand neighbour Westminster, grabs the opportunity to secede from Britain in this classic example of comedies produced by the famous Ealing Studios after World War II. But Pimlico is not where it was filmed, but about a mile away on the other side of the Thames, where a huge set was built on a cleared bomb site in the Lambeth Road. The story, when bomb damage uncovers documents revealing that Pimlico belongs to the French Duchy of Burgundy, the neighbourhood declares independence from the tyranny of rationing and licensing laws introduced during austerity following the war years. All passports, passports, ready please. All hand luggage open please. Kindly make your currency declarations please. What please. the devil does this mean? The train is now at the Burgundy Frontier. Ah, the fighting people, Mr. Bassett. <laughs> Worthy successors of the Knights of the Golden Fleece. Have you anything to declare, madam? Any foodstuffs, livestock, linen or cotton goods? No. Any muskrats, mealworms, motorcycles, hashish, prepared opium or agricultural machinery? Oh. Just on the verge of being starved out by the British government, the residents of Pimlico react with joy when parcels of food are tossed over the border by proud anti-establishment Londoners. A wry, spry comedy about community, pig-headedness and the very concept of nationalism. It's never felt more timely. Although the bomb-flattened area has been totally redeveloped, if you stand on the Lambeth Road between Hercules Road and Kennington Road and look north towards Lambeth Bridge, you can clearly recognise the railway arches that dominated the set. London has always been a major scene-setting city for films. Those stuck-at-home times of us all pining for the freedoms of a big city, to hang out, see the sights, or just sit down to a pint and watch the world go by. Until we can experience that freedom, why not experience the big city vicariously and take a trip to its most glamorous nooks and seediest crannies as captured by some great filmmakers? In Four Weddings and a Funeral, Charles, the wonderful Hugh Grant, lives and has that romantic, rainy reunion on Highbury Terrace in Highbury Fields. Hello. Hi, you're soaking. No, no, I'm fine, I'm fine. Comes a point when you're so wet you can't get any wetter. Okay, I'll come out. No, please don't. I, I just want to check you're okay. Not busy killing yourself or anything, but 
He also wanders along the South Bank and has a matrimonial meltdown at Smithfields by St. Bartholomew the Great. In Rocks, the 2020 acclaimed film by Sarah Gavron, a love letter to Hackney and Tower Hamlets, Rocks showcases East London's rooftops, places to go to dream, and its grittier street-level realities. One of the locations is the rooftop at Bethnal Green's eight-storey Sulcan House, with its vistas across to the City of London's gleaming towers. Selfies and shape-throwing are the order of the day as the summer sun beats down on the would-be young film stars. In Victim, the outstanding 1961 film starring Dirk Bogard as a married barrister wrestling with his homosexuality, it has a London scene with a homophobic old-school landlord of a West End pub who sounds off about homosexuality to a woman at the bar and then hypocritically wishes a good night to a pair of regular customers, two old gay men. Several scenes unfold in and around Covent Garden, the Salisbury pub on St. Martin's Lane, then a gay-friendly pub, featuring predominantly. The Long Good Friday, 1979, begs the question, is this the greatest British gangster movie of them all? If so, it's thanks to Finsbury Park's own Bob Hoskins. Let's shut Everything's all right. All the troubles are over. What did he say? Sorry, Helen. But I'm glad you dropped in to say goodbye. That's real nice. We leaving? Yeah. We're not going back to New York. Let's fly out. Hey, come on, Charlie. I know we've had a few problems, but you've only been here a couple of days. Yeah, a couple of days that turned out to be another St. Valentine's massacre. Crass and beautiful, but totally magnetic, the film has one London location which I know very well, having played in an orchestra there for over a decade, Hawksmoor's splendid St George's in the East Church in Shadwell. Things start going wrong when mob boss Harold's car gets blown up outside. And who could forget Stephen Freer's My Beautiful Laundrette from 1985? The past is another country, and the mid-80s South London setting feels like a continent apart, with racist skinheads prowling the streets and Wandsworth full of squatters on the dole, rather than rich bankers and Audis these days. The streets of Vauxhall look familiar but scruffy with boarded-up shopfronts and not a Sainsbury's in sight. Gary Oldman stars and directs Nil by Mouth, 1979, a blistering account of a family living in south-east London with its concrete council blocks, laundrettes, the old Kent Road and working-class London in its every frame. Much of the film was shot on the now-demolished Ferrier estate in Kidbrook, Greenwich. I will leave you with one of the most loved London-centric films, With Nail and I. You know the story of the out-of-work, down-at-heel actors Withnail and Marwood, who escaped the nicotine-brown Camden town of 1969 for a mini-break at a remote cottage owned by Withnail's flamboyant uncle Monty. Spoiler alert! The duo's battered jag hurtles along the M25 near Rickmansworth, despite the film being set 17 years before the Orbital motorway actually opened. That's films for you!
need a bigger boat. That's all for now. Next time we'll be looking forward to June's programme. Please let us know if you'd like to tell us about your unforgettable film, the film that means the most to you. If you'd like to tell us yours, we'd love to hear from you, so contact us via walter at jichestercinema.org and please mark it podcast. Thanks for listening, and until next month, it's goodbye from Carol. Bye-bye for now. From Patrick. Goodbye. And from me, Sandy. Goodbye. Frank were planning to disconnect me, and I'm afraid that's something I cannot allow to happen. Find us at chichestercinema.org. <laughs>